will be good. Yep. Okay, and uh, JP, is it JP Barrick or? Yep, JP Barrick. Okay, I'm guessing that's a Jean-Pierre or Jean-Paul. Uh... <laughs> Jean-Paul. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Uh, today's guest is uh, JP Barrick, who I welcome to the show to talk about mining. And uh, me being um, from a financial background, I, I can understand Bitcoin from a markets perspective, but not a mining perspective. I still think they dug out the ground somehow. So uh, JP is going to answer some very, very basic questions for me. But the first question uh, is going to come from my co-host. Uh, Lauren's back on the show after uh, missing last night's show because it was too late. You were asleep, weren't you? Yeah. Um, no, I wasn't asleep. I think I, you I, were. I, you just didn't realize. I, I had a podcast what, at 10. What, 10? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So um, what are you going to ask JP? Do you remember your question? How can... Yeah, how does computers make Bitcoin? It's a good question. Um, computers make Bitcoin by using a lot of electricity to do a really complicated math problem that involves solving a Bitcoin block or a hash. And every time you solve a block, the Bitcoin network pays you some Bitcoin. And your computer used that electricity and it did this math problem. And if you're successful, you, you, you get the coins. And that's how you win a Bitcoin, you could say. But you can't touch Bitcoin. You can't touch Bitcoins, but you can touch miners. Very true. Well, what are miners? Not young people. Like, you, know. <laughs> <laughs> you can't touch Because you definitely can't touch miners. <laughs> <laughs> Not those type of miners. <laughs> <laughs> but a less a good lesson nonetheless. Right. So <laughs> when when you, we were talking what mm. have you ever seen a miner in a film? This is what we were talking about earlier. What? Uh Zoolander? Yeah. <laughs> they look like two boxes with two fans on them and they just blow air really quickly through them. And they're computers, like your phone, but different. <laughs> yeah. So she was talking earlier about, um, she's like, oh yeah, miners, like people who mine and they dig for rocks, like Derek Zoolander in, that, in the film, when he's down <laughs> digging for coal. <laughs> yeah, they weren't looking for Bitcoin down there, Yeah, were but I remember that thing off my heart. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I think you've set the stage perfectly. So um, do you want to say goodbye to JP and I'll carry on with the, uh, with the interview in the same vein? Okay. Yep, okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks very much for uh, and good night. Good night. Thank you very much for starting the interview off with. Um, so I mean, hash. You said hash in there, and you know, help a brother out. <laughs> you know, think about it as a, a big math problem where we're trying to find a solution that is above that is higher than the current block uh reward or whatever the difficulty is so the difficulty sets almost like the minimum score think about it as a almost like a high jump and you have to get higher than that jump so you're doing math calculations your computers are just doing a bunch of math calculations to try to get a number that is called a hash that is higher than that difficulty once you do that then you got a valid block 
And so what happens is, is the, the Bitcoin difficulty will say, we believe that over the next um, two weeks, in order to maintain the 10 minute block time, we're gonna set the, the difficulty at this rate. We're gonna set how high the computers have to jump, uh, metaphorically, at this rate. And so miners are constantly trying to, to run these calculations to try to get that answer to that math problem that's above uh, that difficulty rate, or, or that, that number is greater than that difficulty. And that's how you get a new, a new block in Bitcoin. Oh, no one's ever explained it to me like that. So, all right, to, to stick on that analogy, you've got a high jump, you've got the competition going on, and the difficulty adjustment, is that correct terminology? Yep. Is the height of the bar. And yep. to, if you clear the bar, you obviously go into the next round, or you are the first to clear the bar, you, you've, you know, you've, you've, you've done the hash rate, you've solved the hash rate, or... Yep. If you cleared the bar, you got a block. You built a block. You successfully built a Bitcoin block and you get paid all those Bitcoins. So huh, that's how okay. Now this is what, the, so the difficulty adjustment that, which, what, which doesn't happen in the Olympics, it doesn't move down again, right? Yep. Well, it can move down again. It's, it's every in two Bitcoin, weeks. In Bitcoin, it can. Yeah. Right. Okay. Explain that. Why does the difficulty adjustment go up and down and depend what's driving that? Because there's only a limited amount of Bitcoins and the supply schedule of how many new Bitcoins are going to come out every day for the next hundred years has already been set and defined. We, in order to maintain that schedule, that supply schedule, the difficulty has to adjust according to the amount of computers that are working on the Bitcoin problem or the Bitcoin mining problem. So when more computers join the network and it becomes super profitable when Bitcoin price is very high, then these computers are going to increase that difficulty. But sometimes Bitcoin price can crash and these computers are not profitable anymore because they're older generation technology or the power rates are too high. Those then those miners get turned off and they're no longer running. And that difficulty can come down to make it more economical for everyone else to mine Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has a nice equilibrium with it where it never is going to be unprofitable to mine for everyone because that's kind of the point of Bitcoin is that someone will always be able to mine it profitably unless people would not do it. So it's this math problem that's always fluctuating based on really three variables, which are the Bitcoin price, the Bitcoin difficulty, and your, your cost of capital, cost of electricity, um, cost to maintain and manage your operations. Um, and those are the efficiency of that operation is really what builds uh, the Bitcoin math problem or the Bitcoin mining problem, which decides who's profitable and who's going to make money from mining Bitcoin. Okay. Now, if we, <laughs> if we, if we take this all the way back, because, you know, mining Bitcoin just basically started with, you know, individuals, um, you know, kind of like stumbling across this opportunity to plug their computer in or um, did it even just start on computers or did you have to buy an actual machine? Yeah. So it started, the very first Bitcoins were mined on laptops and desktops. And um, people were working on the code. And then eventually they were able to unlock the code to run it on a GPU, which is the video card that your computer has in it. Mm -hmm. So then people started building those out and they started um, running it on large amounts of GPUs. And then after that, it went to something called an FPGA, which is like the next step up in processing and each each step we go up becomes more specific to mining bitcoin and it can't do much else so the computer can do a lot of things 
a graphics card can do a lot of things. An FPGA can do not as many things as a CPU, but can do a decent amount of still calculations. You can program them. The final step in that is an ASIC. And uh, back in the day, maybe 2012, 2013, the first Bitcoin ASIC miners were coming out. So these were chips, semiconductor chips, that could only do one thing. And that was the SHA-256 algorithm, which is the algorithm behind Bitcoin. And those machines, they can't do anything else but run that math problem, that computational algorithm called SHA-256, calculating that math problem is all they could do. So you can't run a Bitcoin miner and, you know, surf the internet with it. Okay. SHA-256. Yep. This is, this is the math problem that needs to be solved to win a Bitcoin. Is that correct? That is correct. That's the specific math problem. Who is for, you know, um, for an analogy, who is the teacher setting the SHA-256 math problem? So who is the teacher as in, I might need you to rephrase that. Right. Like, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Where does the SHA-256 math problem come from every 10 minutes? Sure. That's, well, that is the difficulty. So the SHA-256 math problem is an encryption that we use to encrypt a lot of things on the internet. So if I'm working with a bank, they use a type of encryption. Mm-hmm. And so basically, Bitcoin mining, you have to prove that you got to uh, a number. And there's like, yeah, this NP, P equals NP math problem, which is basically you have a, a nonce and you have to guess what the right answer is without knowing what that is. And that's what SHA-256 plays into. And it gets very technical into the math and of that. And I don't honestly don't know the full details of it, but you basically have two inputs or an input that you don't know the answer to. And you're trying to get this other on basically a code to unlock it. And that's what the difficulty is. It's something, uh, a number above that, above that code or above that limit. And that's what SHA-256 is, is that hashing algorithm that makes it all work. Um, each coin has a different hashing algorithm, but Bitcoin specifically is SHA-256. Okay. Um, so one thing I really struggle to, to help people understand because I just have no idea is that they say to me, yeah, but where does it come from? Like who sets, you know, like how are they released? Like, um, how are the Bitcoins released? Yeah. Or so the, the Bitcoins come from the Bitcoin network because think about it. Every time you jump over that hurdle in, in our, you know, a high jump analogy, you get a, you get a gold medal, you get a block of Bitcoins. Mm-hmm. And that's saying, congratulations, you, 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 you won. And who sets that, that bar is the, the difficulty is set um, by the network itself. And every 2,048 blocks, we retarget the difficulty. We readjust it and we reset that. So that's just the network all agreeing that this is the new difficulty based on the fact that we're trying to maintain a 10-minute block time. Mm-hmm. So if we're, if we're going too fast, the difficulty has to increase to maintain a 10 minute block time. If we're going too slow, it drops and it just, that's how it calculates itself. That's how it moves up and down. Okay. So every 10 minutes, this is how the code was written in the first place. Every 10 minutes, there was going to be a reward of Bitcoin. This is in like the, the base code of the the, the whole thing. So it's on average. So every 10 minutes on average, statistically speaking, there should be a new block. Sometimes you'll be every one minute. Sometimes it'll be as long as 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. And, and, but every 10 minutes on average is what the Bitcoin network tries to do. So if we're doing 
if we're doing blocks every nine minutes, the difficulty will move to make sure it's at 10 minutes. And that happens every 2,048 blocks, I believe. So that, that, that number, 2,048, is hard-coded in the Bitcoin code. Just hmm. saying every 2,048 blocks, recalculate the difficulty and make it harder to build a block or make it easier depending on the status of the network or the state. Right, okay. So, and if, if we go back again, um, like to, to when mining first began, uh, how did you first start learning about it? What, what alerted you to it? And, um, you know, were you one of these guys that were, were doing it on your laptop to begin with? Or did, did you miss that gold rush? <laughs> I, I missed that gold rush. That was like right when Bitcoin was coming out, like 2009, 2008 type of time frame. I got into crypto um, 2012, 2013, um, right around then. And right around when I was 14 years old and started mining and buying Bitcoin and trying to figure out what this thing was. So I did start mining on my, um, my GPU at home, which was a graphics card, plugged it in. Wait up, yeah. wait up, wait up. You're 14. <laughs> You're 14. You're 14 and you start mining, well, trying to mine and understand Bitcoin. Uh, yeah. How? Like why? What, 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 was there a game or something? Was there a chat room? What, what, what kind of... So what it was for me, I think what it became was just like, I really liked the idea of money separated from a government, money that was like backed by math. And I kind of just started digging into this Bitcoin thing. I really, I was like kind of myself a self-proclaimed libertarian as a freshman in high school and trying to understand the world. And I was kind of an entrepreneur doing some small businesses on the side and, and really always had a nick for just learning and reading and really it was just get in Wikipedia and just during class, they would teacher would be teaching and I would be on my laptop and I would just read about Bitcoin and read about hashing algorithms and read about the general Byzantines problem, which is, you know, a problem that Bitcoin helps solve and all of these issues on what does it mean to build an internet backed money? And I started really getting into like e-gold and trying to understand all that space and, you know, the history before Bitcoin and read some, some great books and really was just self-taught my whole journey of just learning about crypto. And then you get to a point where you, you understand the history and you understand most of the new stuff that's coming out. And now it's like, where are we going and where's that future and how does the future look like in 10, 20 years? And I think by the time high school was done, I was almost like through my, my Bitcoin education journey. And I built that, that knowledge. I went down the rabbit hole, as we like to say, and I learned so much. And then about even monetary policy and how money's made and why, why do we work for money? And what are this, where, is this, where does this cash come from? And that's what intrigued me as a young, you know, a young high schooler and then into early college years. Mate, you're making my heart sing right now. You know, it's a, it's, um, it's a subject very close to my heart, you know, self-directed learning and, um, you know, like the education system as it's set up at the moment is failing kids. Um, and like to picture you sitting in some boring class with a flapping head at the front, not listening, and you're on Wikipedia teaching yourself about Austrian economics and Bitcoin and what money actually is. I'm going to make my kids listen to this. I hope all the <laughs> listeners make their kids listen to this because this is crazy. Like, you know, this is where education should be. Yeah. That's a whole different, that's a whole different <laughs> podcast. <laughs> let's, uh, 
let's not digress into that. Let's, let's keep on to mining. So you're in a rabbit hole. You decide to start having a go at it. You, you've got some laptops or desktop computers and you're trying to win yourself some Bitcoin. And now you're learning by doing so. And you've seen this thing play out from like the very, very beginning. Yeah, pretty, pretty early. Not like I said, not, not the very, very beginning, but I got, I had a, about six graphics cards in a, um, a milk crate and you basically plug them in, you have one motherboard running in my basement. And I was trying to figure out what this, you know, what Bitcoin was. And then I ended up getting two of those and my dad and I had to put like new outlets in our basement so we could run them because it would so much power. Yeah, it was crazy. And then from there we ended up, um, I ended up raising some money um, from family and friends and bought a bunch of graphics cards. And we were mining about 500 Ethereum a day at one point um, out of a, yeah, out of a small, like yarn facility where it was an industrial yarn facility that got turned into a Bitcoin mine. And we had one of the first Ethereum mining operations there before there was really any software. And that was, you know, a crazy experience there running those machines, the 24 seven operations. And it was only me and one of my friends in high school. And um, I ended up we were basically sleeping on the floor of this yarn mill, putting these machines on and working. You'd work till four in the morning, um, go to bed, wake up and either drive to school, which was like an hour drive away, go to school and then come back and come back to the mining facility on the weekends. I would basically stay there because someone had to maintain the facility and that there was no knowledge yet. There was not enough technical knowledge to hire someone to be, bring someone else on. There was still being built and the software wasn't there. There was you know, no operating systems because back in the day, building GPUs, getting more than one graphics card to one run on a laptop was hard to do. So people were trying to get eight and 12 of these graphics cards. So that journey kind of just watched me grow and I built GPU mines and then we started getting bigger and now you have full buildings and containers and now you're, you know, industrial size scale, but it all started with, you know, a couple machines in my parents' basement, really. And then in a shed outside the house where we were just mining crypto. And that's, that's how I got involved. And that's, it was like, you know, like you said, learning by doing and all self-talk, a lot of it. So, I mean, did your dad start asking questions when the electricity bill came through? Like, you know, what? The, the question was, here's the electricity bill. Where's my check? <laughs> <laughs> right. That was the question. <laughs> so, I mean, I was just using so much more power than everyone else. And, you know, I was basically just paying the whole power bill for my whole house for a couple, couple of years. But the mining could handle that, right? I'm assuming. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it, was, yeah it, was, it was. It was profitable, right? I mean, you were making money. Um, Ethereum was only a couple dollars when we were mining it at that large scale and you're mining and mining and trying to sell your power bill, trying to pay your power bill. So you sell your, you know, your coins, you're mining and every day, you know, you're making that little margin and you're trying to maintain thousands of computers or hundreds of computers. And it's not an easy task. It's especially when it's 24 seven, it's uh, you know, computers don't sleep and the mining Bitcoin mining never stops. So when, like, when you've got those machines down there, what needed what was the upkeep? What was like, you know, it's not well, like you just turn it on and go to sleep. Like, yeah, well, with, 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 with two machines, two mining rigs or eight graphics cards, it's very easy. You just set it down, plug it in, you work on it to get it going. And then you might have one or two cards fail over a course of a week and you have to go fix them or restart it. But with hundreds of machines or thousands of machines, that's where it becomes a challenge. Um, of you know how who can do it at scale and where we are really now, where it's you need thousands of machines to compete. 
Right. Now I've got to, before we get into like the grand scale that we're at now, <laughs> I got a question about, you know, noobs coming into the space who have heard about mining and they've heard about like, um, you know, I just buy a machine, I plug it in, connect it to Wi-Fi, and I start making Bitcoin. Mm, are those days kind of just completely gone or are there companies out there that you can still, you know, get something going? Yeah. I mean, there, there are companies out there that will sell you mining products. You know, there is a market for it. That's how we started off selling to home users. Now we've since scaled and said, we can't target that industry because it's just not profitable for us there. Right now you can buy machines that are more hobbyists. It's like, Mm-hmm. almost like I want to get into this. I know I'm not going to make any money, but I want to play around with it. I want to test it. That's where home mining is now. You might be profitable for a little bit, you know, a couple, I would say maybe six to nine months out of every four year period when Bitcoin prices are really high, huh. but over a long term, you're not going to be able to run a profitable mining rig at your house. Unless of course you're using, you know, heat for the heat, using the heat to heat your house or you're using the mining for you know another additional benefit other than just mining cryptocurrency, right? Because you know, yeah, I, I get the hobbyist thing, and like you know, I've looked into it before. Is like, oh, should I buy one of these machines? But if then I think, you know, if I'm going to spend two or three hundred bucks on one of these machines, I'll, I'll just stack Sats instead. Like, you know. exactly. What I think will actually happen over the next you know five or ten years is that will be this asset will be securitized, so mining hash rate will be traded and sold. And will allow people to, instead of just buying a miner, I will buy cryptocurrency assets like Bitcoin. I will then put my Bitcoin with a company that um, holds the custody of that coin and then can lend off of that coin to buy miners. So now you have almost like a bank, which is generating interest, um, higher interest than you can make from the lending market right now, but to miners and from mining is where the interest is generated. So I think that's where consumers play a role is now they have a, they own the Bitcoins. They have a choice where they want to put that money. And if they want to put that money to work for them, instead of buying a miner for their house, they can invest, they can put that money into a savings account or into an account that will start to generate yield for them through cryptocurrency mining. Interesting. Okay. That's, that's one line of questioning I wanted to ask you about uh, later on, actually. Um, but to stick to mining for now, you, you've been in the space since you were 14, 15. You're now early 22, 22 yeah. right? Okay. Uh, is, um is your, your website and your company. And I think the best, the best name I've ever seen is, uh, you know, I've got to ask you, what is the BitCave? Huh. Well, the BitCave is one of our mobile mining solutions that okay. you deploy right where power is. And it's originally we were designing it so that the miners would be kind of all almost up in the ceiling of the container and venting through the roof. Um, so that's kind of where the name came from. It's like a cave. <laughs> and that's right. Okay. So <laughs> I got a whole list of questions, right? So let's, let's ask one about um, a bit of FUD and um, the FUD around uh, all my is centralized in China. And that's the whole reason I don't want to buy Bitcoin because it's being controlled by the Chinese. So there are, there are a lot of miners in China, but they're not all in China. Mining um, coin shares comes out with a great report, which is with fidelity every couple of months, every quarter, I believe that says like, 
here's how many Bitcoin miners are here, here's how many Bitcoin miners are here. We're seeing a move of miners outside of China into other locations. But China definitely does have a great advantage because they're close to the factories that produce the chips, the mining chips um, in Taiwan. And they, are, they have massive amounts of hydro. The Chinese are also famous for building lots of infrastructure and being, have lots of capital that goes into infrastructure. Also, the banking is much more, is, is, I guess, much more favorable for mining companies in China. They're able to get loans and um, access to capital to build your mining operation. In the U.S., we're probably four to five years behind China when it comes to access to capital to build these mining facilities. Right now, most of it is cash still, and it's still private investors. In China, China there, there's a lot of cool vehicles that have been put together in the crypto world and in the banking world that have allowed mining companies to scale very quickly there. So that's why China has such a strong, I guess, you know, has been the leader for so long is because of they have easy access to chips, cheap power, and uh, access to capital. Here in the U.S., uh, you don't really have um, all three of those things. We're kind of farther away from Taiwan. So physically, you know, the miners have to we spend more money to get our miners. Um, the electricity prices are actually better, can be better in the United States if you can find them. Um, and then the capital, the banks aren't allowed to work with Bitcoin mining companies. Most traditional banks will look at you and say, we can't even bank you. And that's one of the biggest problems is getting banking in the crypto mining industry. It's very scary. And it's people like, they don't understand the process of mining Bitcoins. And they're, if obviously a Bitcoin price goes down, our profitability changes. So there's this huge you know, kind of, no, we, we can't work with you type of mentality uh, when it comes to lending to Bitcoin miners. And you'll see a lot of companies will say like, oh, we're doing blockchain, we're doing AI, we're looking to do partnerships with NVIDIA. And that's how, you know, they're spinning the angle of we're not a Bitcoin mining company. Wow. That seems back to front. You just thought like the U.S., would have been like, you know, way ahead of that. And um... there's a lot of just, in my opinion, discriminatory, you know, actions against Bitcoin miners with have massive cash flows, really good margins, but they won't even, it won't even get past to like to underwriting because you mentioned Bitcoin mining in your application. Where's that Where coming from? Is that regulation? I, I think it's regulation. I mean, there's, I used to I used to have a, a couple of accounts with Wells Fargo back in the day, and then because they basically said, "Hey, you're a mining company, we're going to write law, we're going to write rules in our in our you know our company that says we don't want to deal with Bitcoin miners or Bitcoin related companies, and we can shut down your accounts." So jumping from banks to banks as a company is always something Bitcoin miners have to do. Now there's become a little bit more crypto friendly banks like Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank. Um, great you know great people to be banking with if you're in the mining space or the crypto space in general but it's always been a challenge. And it's one of the things that we're falling behind in China is um, the security laws here in the United States are preventing, you know, what I talked about securitization of this asset class in access by individual consumers to get access to this great, um, this great yield, this great return on this investment that, you know, can return 20 to 30% um, rate of return every year. But because of our security laws here in the United States, we actually can't offer that to people. We can't, you can't sell hash right here. Cloud hashing, that's why it's illegal in most states. And that's why people have been, you know, 
put up uh, sub subpoenaed for it and season deceit letters because in the United States you're selling a security and you can't do that here without having the proper you know regulation without having the proper documents in place and selling to the right people. Now I had Jeff Van Drew on the on the show um, just the other day and I was asking him about how did Bitcoin get um, you know slotted into this securities uh, bundle instead of a currency. Now if it was a currency, would you be facing these same kind of issues? Um, I don't know if it was a currency, if we would be facing these kind of issues. I think because hash rate is almost like a derivative of Bitcoin itself. It's you know something. It's a product that's producing. I I think you still would because it's it doesn't pass the Howey test, which is how you classify security, and you know that's where where the problems begin. And that's what, for me, has really kind of prevented a lot of innovation for the past four years where it's like, oh, I want to do this. And I probably talked to lawyers for like hundreds and hundreds of hours where you're trying to figure out what's the best way to approach this. And they're like, no, you can't do that. It's security. No, you can't do that. It's security. When in reality, one of my visions is to make you know this Bitcoin accessible to everyone and to be able to allow it to provide financial freedom for everyone. Because what I see is that, you know, one of the reasons why I was so driven in high school for in college and learning about Bitcoin is because I see money controlling people's lives and what they can and can't do. And they say, I, you know, I'm, I need to work this job and even if I don't want to be here. And reality is, is that they're playing in a game and then they're working with a monetary system that wasn't built for them and that is being abused. And so they're being, you know, printed out of their purchasing power and they're constantly stuck at the wage they're at. They have very little ability to move up in, in their wage. At the same time, the banks are printing billions and billions of dollars, and they'll never be able to keep up with inflation. I, you try to explain to people, hey, you can come over this new currency, and I think that's where Bitcoin has such an opportunity, is to provide a, almost like a basic income to everyone through these interest vehicles that we're building, through lending, through, through mining eventually, and through other ways that Bitcoin can truly be prop, profitable for, for the citizens that are, you know, contributing capital and contributing resources to help the Bitcoin network out. So the conspiracy theorist in me just wants to like, you know, point fingers at the regulators, like, uh, you know, you guys know, you know, this could free people and this is why you're making it so damn difficult. But at some stage they're going to have to lower the bar on the regulations because of all the other countries like China, like you said, four or five years ahead of the game, Man. Okay, so go ahead. I was going to say, they, you know, the regulators are here. They, they, they come in to protect, you know, people from scams, which you've seen a lot of them in the crypto space. And that's exactly what their job is. And that's important. But stifling innovation where you can verify everything, you can verify your hash rate contracts, you can create open marketplaces to trade this, buy and sell it. You can make, let people, you know, come to this space and really, be able to profit from it is and and not only profit from it but have it so that we can you know most of the everyone in the community can win it's a zero sum game and you can you can speculate on the asset class is something that should be happening but there's a lot of regulations that are preventing that the one reason why lending took off so much is because it's it's collateral and it's not security law so you see why lending is such a big thing is because it's a different type of laws that they have to comply with than securities and that's why we haven't seen tokenized real estate you know tokenized companies all these different tokenization things that we've been talking about for the past four years 
And that's why we just saw lending blow up this year. It's because it falls in a different set of regulations in the United States. Outside of the US, the whole tokenization aspect of blockchain and crypto is growing rapidly. But here in the United States, we, we can't do it. We can't compete. Uh, and what do you mean exactly by lending? So lending, like when we lend coins out, like if we go on a you know BlockFi or mm. uh, some of the other lending com- companies out there, um, you know that's that is how people are making money right now from their crypto with interest, just interest only. So that because it's because it's not a security and it follows different regulation because you're just pledging your collateral and they're rehypothecating it to someone else and you're not you don't have to follow the same rules. Right. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So if we go back to China and um, like we said, there's a great deal of mining going on that's concentrated in China. Is the argument that, you know, it, that is, that is, that is true, but they're not all Chinese companies. Uh, do we have companies from around the world that are represented in China? Um, I would say that the argument is that yes, the majority of miners are still in China, but it's growing. It's, it's moving out. The next phase of mining, we'll see a bunch of energy companies. Mm-hmm. We're seeing energy companies already, you know, knocking the, at our door. We're working with them and you know doing deployments with them. But that's where we're we're seeing huge opportunity. Right. So for, for the energy, the energy side of thing is these companies are all going to places where the power prices are next to nothing, where they have energy in their portfolio that is is free, that it doesn't cost them anything, that um, is in excess. So great examples are like West Texas or North Dakota, where they have so much gas, they would pay people to take it because they don't have enough pipelines for it. Um, there's plenty of places in the world where that problem exists. And Bitcoin mining at its fundamental is just using electrons that don't have a consumer and finding those electrons in the world that don't have access to the grid, that can't get out, using that stranded energy being really sh- scrappy and finding these, these stranded pockets of power to make money from them. Bitcoin mining creates a, a marketplace for the whole world to sell electricity. No matter where I am located, I can sell my power to this network. And that provides a huge opportunity um, really for the world. Of course, right now, Bitcoin mining has been it's painted as you know, bad for the environment and it, it has all of these things that come with it. But we're starting to see that actually it does help the, the processes and procedures and it does help these companies um, scale their operations, be more efficient, be more environmentally friendly and, and not have to worry about all of the, the problems that come with energy that they can't use because energy cannot be created or destroyed. It has to go somewhere. And that creates a, some massive problems for these industries. And this, like I said, this marketplace for Bitcoin mining lets us sell our power to anyone in the world, anywhere, you know, basically to Bitcoin, sell our, we can sell our power. Um, and that's the nice thing about it is it creates a derivative marketplace uh, for electricity. And I think that as we keep generating more and more power on um, power productions, keep power prices keep falling um, that, you know, Bitcoin mining is going to step in and be able to suck a lot of this excess energy out of the system and provide a, provide a, a marketplace for it, where at least they can get paid something which means the profitability of mining is going to you know, very quickly decrease because you'll see massive players coming into space using Bitcoin mining as a tool to sell their energy positions and, and sell their portfolio 
um, sell the energy that they're currently generating that doesn't have a consumer, that doesn't have an end user. So, you, right, okay, the way I understand it, you've got, um, so if we use uh, Texas as a, an example, you've got, um, I mean, that's oil country, right? Um, or natural gas, uh, and you've got all of this excess energy that you can't, that is just gonna go to waste. You can now buy a, a bit cave, yep. plug it in, like, you know, your remote location, and use that to potentially mine Bitcoin, if, if you clear the, uh, um, the, uh, the bar, right? And when the, um, yeah, exactly. The block. That's it. That's how you, that's what we're, we're seeing. It's modular areas where you have small pockets of power, you know, 30, 10 to a hundred megawatts of power, which is enough to power, you know, thousands and thousands of homes. That's yeah. in the middle of nowhere. And you can't just dump the gas on the ground. You can't, you have to light it on fire and flare it into the environment, which is how we have methane. And that's not really productive or helpful or good for the environment in any way. So there's this huge opportunity for Bitcoin miners to come in, not only where gas is, but where we have wind energy. There's so much wind energy being put up. We actually just passed, there's now more renewable wind energy than there is hydro in the United States. And this might, these, these wind farms are only built for tax incentives. So in 10 years, like if they're done with their tax incentives, they're done with their power contracts. It's sometimes not even profitable to keep them running. Hmm. So now you have like Germany, one of the biggest problems with Germany is that they built all these wind farms mm -hmm. and they didn't build any transmission lines. They built about 5% of the transmission lines they were supposed to because there's no incentives to build transmission lines. There are incentives for companies like Google, Amazon, Microsoft to come in and say, we're going green. We're going to pay for infrastructure to be built, for wind farms to be built to offset our carbon emissions, to offset the, our energy um, that we're using in our data centers. But there's no capital to say we're going to actually transport that energy to us. So they just, everyone's spending money on building the energy, but now actually bringing it to consumers. They don't think about consuming it. They only think about how do we build it, because that's how I get paid. So you have a massive problem where all these tax dollars are going into energy resources, which is causing the prices to go way, way down, the lowest they've ever been right now, natural gas prices, the lowest you know, wind energy cost has ever been. It just keeps going down and down and down, which everyone thinks is great until they're only building it for the tax subsidies. And so now you have all this metal and all these wind farms, and all these turbines, that once that's done, there's no reason for eight gigawatts of wind in West Texas. No one lives there. There's a couple hundred thousand people. Eight gigawatts is more power than, you know, New York uses, New York City. Holy shit. That's ridiculous. Yep. And that's the, that's the energy industry. So what's gonna, they're going to wake up and they're going to say, wow, we have a massive problem that we've created for ourselves. We have all this excess energy that we don't need and we can't transport anywhere. We're just building it for tax incentives. Now, how do we use it? Is this where the term greenwashing comes from? Uh, I'm not familiar, but it sounds like it could definitely fit right into this. <laughs> okay. Well, when you, like you named a few of those companies there and like, uh, you know, they'll come out and say, we're doing this, we're doing that. You know, it's all about um, clean energy. And um, so we just get greenwashed into thinking they're being amazing and uh, yeah. driving. I look at that, that is exactly what greenwashing is. And that's what, what's happening at such a large scale. So we've got these wind farms, like in the UK, for example, off the coast of uh, East Anglia, 
just vast, vast wind farms. How is that energy getting transmitted back to the mainland then? I, I just assumed there'd be underground cables. There, there is an underground cable, right? But then it's after it gets to the mainland, where does it go from there? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, how much is lost in that transmission, right? It, it, um, I think I saw it the other day called, it was, uh, called the dual effect. Uh, the amount of energy that is lost from, you know, the point of production to the point of um, uh, utilization. And, it's, and it, it's, it's happening. It's not like it's not being transmitted, but sometimes the wind turbines, like they'll be spinning, but there's no turbine running because they can't, you have to, when you generate that energy, it has to go somewhere. So if the grid can't take that capacity, that wind turbine will spin and there'll be, the turbine won't be engaged. So it won't be making any power. So it looks like it's generating energy, but really isn't and that's what happens when you don't have enough consumers and we don't have enough uh you know a way to get the power from one spot to the other so they really the end consumer so this is a massive problem in the energy markets and it's only becoming worse and worse in every type of energy renewables oil and gas so wow okay so i mean <laughs> talking about it from the from this standpoint that completely breaks down the whole fight around, you know, Bitcoin is bad for the environment and it's using as much electricity as like a small country and all of this. What it's yeah. actually doing is capturing energy that was just going to be lost or burnt or emitted into the, uh, into the atmosphere. Exactly. And that's why, why we, why do we paint Bitcoin like this? It's like, it doesn't, because Bitcoin's fine until you get to mining and now it's like you're using all this energy to do it. Why? It's not worth it. And you realize, wait, this energy is really not being used in any way. Either way, we're not using it. We're just over-creating it. Okay, let's, let's get into some market talk, which I'm a little bit more comfortable around. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. What are the derivative markets being set up around um, around mining? Because there's got to be a huge, you know, I've seen markets develop around like, the craziest stuff. I mean, that's the first thing I'm thinking of is um, like a hash rate. Is there a market? Is there a derivative market around a hash rate um, or difficulty and adjustment? So there are markets now where we can hedge our difficulty. Uh, you know, the, the future exchanges, we can hedge our Bitcoin price. We can go out three or six months or 12 months. Hash rate is still young. It's still very early. The longest contract, I had a call with the guy yesterday who does a lot of these contracts for Chinese miners and for other miners. And he said that the longest contract they're, they're doing right now is three months on their hash rate. So I can lock in my difficulty for three months. I can make sure that bar, that the high jump bar stays the same. Um, and I have to also lock in my Bitcoin price. So you can lock both in in case they keep your profits at the same level um, for three months. And that's about as far as we've got out in those marketplaces. The hash rate marketplaces, um, there are some being built up. I haven't seen any with massive amounts of liquidity. But over the next two to five years, hash rate outside of the United States will become, a, will become widely traded. In the United States, it potentially will be available for credit investors. Because when Bitcoin price moves up, the miner price actually moves up as well. So because we're dealing with a real supply chain here, um, Bitcoin has in the past, after the halving, you know, about 500 days afterwards, it, it has pumped to the highest level it's seen. 
in 2017, I was, you know, close to $20,000. In 2013, it was close to, you know, $1,000 plus. So what happens is that you can't actually make enough semiconductor chips. And because mining companies can't be banked and have problems with financing, they can't build up large amounts of inventory. So we have a constraint on our production supply. So when Bitcoin price starts to go up, these mining, this mining equipment becomes more valuable. So we'll see what we call like what I'm calling the mining bubble is when the price of miners that are going for $2,000 right now get to prices anywhere up to $10,000 a piece because they are a derivative of Bitcoin. And there's only a, there's a, there's only a limited supply of them because these mining companies have to buy their chips three to six months in advance. So they just can't say, I need to have another 10,000 Bitcoin miners available tomorrow. So because you have people, no one's interested in Bitcoin mining for maybe three months or three years out of every four-year period, and then you have one, one year where everyone wants to join the industry, and everyone wants to come in. So what that does is creates this artificial demand and has a massive bubble in not only hardware prices, but back to your question, securitization, the hash rate. So that hash rate cost per, the cost per terahash that someone's willing to pay starts to increase significantly. So in 2017, the main mining, um, the main mining device out there was the S9, the Antminer S9. Bitmain came out with that in, in 2016. It was selling for around $2,000. By the time it hit 2019, or sorry, by the time it hit 2017, um, companies like big banks and companies like like Fidelity were paying $9,000 per S9 just to buy the same unit that Bitmain was selling a year and a half earlier for $2,000. The reason being is because Bitmain, like everyone else, sets the price of the miner based on the price of Bitcoin and the difficulty. So as those begin to rise, the the Bitcoin price rises faster than the difficulty can because we have to actually build physical infrastructure. So you have this price discrepancy where new miners, new investors are coming online. They're going to the websites, calculating their profitability. They're typing in the numbers that they see on their Bitmain's website. It says, hey, your machine's going to run this fast. It's going to use this much power. And they're saying, wow, even at $9,000 a piece, my machine's going to make its money back in five months. And the problem is, is Bitcoin mining profitability crashes immediately once the price crashes because the difficulty keeps going up because you have orders that are three months out, four months out. Right now, if you were to buy mining equipment, you couldn't get it till until May. New mining equipment's basically all sold out until May. And that's directly from Bitmain. The reason being is because these companies are building up so much mining liquidity. They're saying we want to deploy as many miners as we can for ourselves not let anyone know about this industry until the price starts to rise. Then we sell off our inventory that's making us money. So our inventory is sitting in a warehouse running, making me money and I can build it up. And then when the price starts to spike, I can sell it to everyone. I can sell it to all these new people who come into the market that are believing the Bitcoin dream. And that's just part of the market dynamics of mining. And it's really sad because it's like you have all this new capital that's going to come in and it gets burned every four years. But that's the, the boom and bust of mining. And that's why mining is, can't be viewed as like a one-year game. If you're getting into the mining space, it needs to be, what are the next four, what are the next 10 years look like? And that's how I believe you have to you know, run a successful mining company and look at building the spaces. How do you, how do you, where is the mining industry going to be in 10 years? Who are the customers going to be in 10 years? What is the hardware going to look like? Are we, why are we all building the same mining boxes? Why, you know, why aren't we changing the, the form factor? 
So there's a lot of interesting things on how do we improve it, but people that come into this space with a one-year outlook um, usually really just get burned because they're paying way too much for the services and they're paying way too much for the machines. The best time to get into mining is when no one's talking about it. And there's a reason for that. Because why would I want to tell you about an investment if I'm making all the money myself and there's only a limited amount of Bitcoins, right? It's a game. Once you understand how to play the mining game and you're an energy company, you're never going to go back. But right now they don't understand it because they believe Bitcoin's not going to stay around. They believe Bitcoin's a fad. You know, it's dying. Whatever, the, whatever that belief is, it's true to them. And, and I obviously disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that's incredible. All right. You mentioned big banks and fidelity. They're mining? Yes, very, very large scale. Chase. Really? And what are they doing with the Bitcoin? Well, depends on who, which bank it is, really. Some of them are, <laughs> some of them are speculating, right? Others are, are, are selling. But I'm guessing if, if you're a bank, I, I don't know what they're doing with their coins, but my guess is they're, they're holding them, especially the bigger banks, because they're not in a situation where they have to, you know, where cash is, is not available in abundance with banking. So for them, they're building out mining facilities. Kellogg's has a, had a giant mining facility, the cereal company. Um, Kellogg's. Kellogg's did, yes. They moved their whole floor out of their basement, their, their whole basement floor operation in their main office. They built a Bitcoin mining facility, like 100 megawatts or something. The cereal company. Yeah, so there's companies that you never expect that are mining Bitcoin at scale because they have all this capital. They have easy access to bond the bond market. They have easy access to capital. They can get money at nothing. And they say, might as well mine crypto. Some people have seen the opportunity. The energy companies, all the major oil and gas companies you could name, they're, they're getting into mining very quickly and at scale. And they're starting to test the waters. So it's definitely the game is changing from them to, like I said, from consumers to retail investors to right now, in my opinion, the next two or three years, energy companies. And then after that, four or five, six, seven years later, uh, nation states, um, banks, sovereign wealth funds, those are the players that will be in the space in, in 2030. And after that, you know, it'll be a race of who can print, which country decides to start printing money to buy and just to build mining facilities because their cash, like it's, they're, they're debasing their cash. And it's, now it's how, many, how much Bitcoin can I get? Because in, in by 2030, you know, Bitcoin price could be close to a million dollars. And their cash is, has already proven to be useless and worthless. And so the way they build their reserves is they just run the, run the printing press, print more money, and buy Bitcoin miners. And until there's no margin there, until everyone is getting the energy from the ground that they have excess of, oil wells right at the oil well, and then mining crypto. That's where I see you know, the, the space going in 10, 15 years, because we're coming to a place where we're just, we print our way out of problems. And the central banks just print more and more money. That's how we solve our economic issues. It's just a giant bubble waiting to burst. And mining is the only money that's real because it's money that's backed by power. It's money that's backed by electricity. That's why Bitcoin has value. Before, the US dollar is basically backed by oil. We have this giant oil trade. And now we're saying, no, 
we don't want to have the money backed by the power and the force of the U.S. dollar and of the government behind in the military. Money should be backed by electrons and by energy where anyone has the opportunity to create it and anyone has the opportunity to use it. So Bitcoin, in my opinion, is the next stage of money, one that is backed by, backed by electrons. I don't know if anybody else heard it, but you said a million dollars per Bitcoin. Yeah. I mean, that's definitely feasible. By every halving, Bitcoin price rises by 10x. If we look back in the 2013 rise, it went to $1,000. When I got into Bitcoin, it was 70. And I told my family, I told all my, my classmates, some of them joined, some of them bought Bitcoin, like, hey, buy this. Why? Because the government, like I said, you have no other way other than to opt out because the government's printing more money than you can ever make. When the Federal Reserve puts $700 billion into the stock market in you know, December and January of this year and last year, you have no way to protect yourself other than by opting out of the system and buying and, and joining a new money, joining a new monetary revolution, joining Bitcoin and blockchain technology. So yeah, the price of Bitcoin will continue to go up. But I think what's more important is, is how many Bitcoins do you have? And can you get interest in Bitcoin and not in dollars? A million dollar Bitcoin is great, but then how much is a million dollars? What does a million dollars buy you? Because I still have one Bitcoin. What does that buy me? So I think we'll see a shift where countries, like I said, will keep printing and printing money where now that number of what the US dollar price per Bitcoin is doesn't really matter. And that's far-fetched. That's, that's you know, maybe when I'm 50 or 40, but that's 20 years out there. And that's where I you know, have to think. And where I think is, what does this industry look like in 10 to 20 years? Because that's the game, you know, that's the mining game. And that's where, where this industry goes. It's because the world is built on infrastructure. The way countries like China and other countries have build, you know, build the economy is by providing building infrastructure projects, building railways, building highways, because that is what develops society. That's what brings people out of poverty. That's what builds the you know, economic revolution, provides opportunity. And so infrastructure projects are what build the world. And when you print money as a government and you do that well and you put money into infrastructure, then you, you are doing you know, well for your economy. You are doing good for your people. But when that money is misspent, and not spent on infrastructure projects that provide opportunity and jobs, that's where the problems arise. And that's you know, what Bitcoin's here to help solve and help play a crucial role in fixing that issue. So mining is the infrastructure for Bitcoin. Yep. So this brings me back to the problems that you guys are facing in the US then. Like, <clears throat> You know, all the regulations around you can't, you can't get, you know, um, a, a loan from even your local bank, let alone a big bank, to, to, to build this infrastructure out. It, it, doesn't paint, it doesn't paint a very good picture for, for the U.S. No, it doesn't. And that's why, you know, most of our new operations that we're looking at are outside of the U.S. Because they're willing to be financed and banks are willing to work with you and they see the opportunity. Because what's happening outside of the U.S. is that, the people's money in their hands is becoming worth less and less and less, and they have to find a way to put it to work. And so they're realizing my dollar is crashing. My, whatever my dollar is, I'm, it's losing 40% of its value. Just when I think in Romania or somewhere, they just lost, they just you know, cut everyone's bank account and said, hey, we're using this new exchange rate. 40% of your, your savings account, gone. Like what, what, what are you going to do to protect yourself? Nothing. People that 
learn about Bitcoin that can get, you know, get access to it anywhere, have the opportunity to now protect themselves and buy that. But yeah, mining is the infrastructure. There's, in my opinion, there's two industries in the whole space. It's trading and mining. We're too young. It's the internet. ICOs were great. A lot of people made a lot of money on it, but it didn't really build much. You know, we're, we're still very pre-early in the D-app development, and there's a lot of very cool things working on there. And DeFi just hit a billion dollars, which is huge. But the mining space, there's been billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of capital invested into building out mining facilities. People don't talk about it. Trading space, that's where all the other money is because it's just speculating on the asset. And those are the two industries that really push forward the whole space in general. Because of the halving event, in my opinion, it's the one reason why Bitcoin has value is because it's scarce. And this halving event is what causes new capital to come in. When we cut an asset production, when we cut, cut an asset uh, production rate or the, rate, the new rate the asset comes into the market in half, that greatly affects the price of that asset. And so in my opinion, you know, it's buy Bitcoin, hold Bitcoin, and wait out these halvings. And of course, you play the markets. You can sell it when, when the price goes up and, and everyone else wants to get in, and you buy it when no one's talking about it. And the same thing works for mining, but just with physical machines. Wow. Okay. Man, we're down some deep rabbit holes. I was not <laughs> considering, Lauren, considering Lauren's first question. How <laughs> we ended up down here. You know, um, everything you're saying just is clicking with me, though. Like the sats are dropping all over the place. <laughs> right. Trading and mining. Trading. Uh, I, this, is, this, is my, this is how I see it playing out. Um, I think there's a huge opportunity for derivatives markets to be um, built up around mining um, and all the different facets of mining. So many different facets of mining, which you've just explained, whether it's the machine, whether it's the chips, whether it's the hash rate, the difficulty adjustment, location, you know, there's, gonna, there's still going to be currency speculation where you're setting these things up. Um, it's endless. <clears throat> and that's futures and that's options. And that's even spot. So this is where I see a lot of um, my ex-colleagues and my ex-customers, uh, you know, all in like, the traditional mainstream finance space where they should be getting excited about what's going on in the Bitcoin space, the mining space, because it's very, very difficult to manage risk, as you would very well know, especially, I mean, you don't even have the tools, as you were saying. Yeah. But as an amateur, you've really, you're on a hiding to nothing. If you've got a seasoned 35 to 45 year old risk manager from a foreign exchange desk from a big bank who's looking to redirect their career. That's where I think the trading professionals can come in and start making a real benefit to energy companies, um, oil companies like, you know, Kellogg's have probably got a very high, you know, good treasury desk or something, but um, you know, the, the, the new, the new, the new big companies that are coming in, and taking a punt on this stuff are gonna need that that risk management. Exactly Otherwise, right. it's just gonna get killed. And that's 
that's what trading is to me. You know, um, listeners, if you know, individual trading, you know, coming in and just like playing around on stock exchanges and stuff, you're going to get wrecked very, very quickly. Um, and, and I want to get some traders on, I'm going to be talking to some traders about this and, um, but like the market is still so young. Do you have an options market yet? It's, it's starting off. It's growing. It's not, it's not matured in any way. It's like I said, short, short term contracts, the hash, there's some places you can buy and sell hash rate, but we're building mining. Like I said, is, is the derivative of electricity. This will be one of the biggest securitized asset classes in the world. Electricity being traded anywhere in the world. Electricity already, most, com most countries, their biggest industry is, is energy. And so now we're securitizing that whole space and we're turning it into an asset that anyone can trade across global, globally. And now we don't have to trade it on a location, on a local basis where your consumer has to be local to where the energy is produced. That massive problem we talked about with wind farms, securitizing this, this hash rate and building these option markets and future markets on top of Bitcoin mining, allow us to trade electricity worldwide, creating potentially one of the biggest option markets in the world. Now it's, who's gonna build it? Exactly, who is gonna build it? Can it come out of the U.S.? I, I currently, I for I think it's very hard to come out of the U.S. It, ha, it could come out for accredited investors only, and you know you can keep it up there with the people that are already passed by the government. But it's probably going to come out somewhere else. Probably going to come out of China. There's a huge miss going on. And I can't, I can't join these dots for the life of me. I can't figure out. Man. Sorry for the silence, listeners. But there's a lot of stuff going on here. All right. Okay. Great. <laughs> Sorry? I said silence can be good. It can be. Um, okay so we've we got mobile mining rigs that are going you know to and from these 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 places of um the energy that's just getting stored and can't be um can't be transported anywhere i got a real one i'm gonna come way out of left field for you okay space mining space mining i like it <laughs> can it be done could the BitCave be launched into space by SpaceX to run off solar 24-7 and be controlled remotely, winning Bitcoin up there and then transferred straight back down to you know, your wallet on your mobile phone? I mean, I don't see why it couldn't be done. Holy shit. It would be economically feasible. <laughs> like... I mean, it's a lot of solar panels to make that much power. You probably need at least two acres of land. So if you're in the sky, whatever that is, mm. worth of solar panels to power one mining container, maintenance would be a minor problem. <laughs> anything that ever breaks. Um, I don't know if we've tested like shooting off a mining container and the amount of force that that would create. 
I don't know if the machines would be able to work after they got up there, but I like the idea. I mean, you could probably, you wouldn't be able to mine 24 seven either. Cause I guess you'd go around the earth and lose the sun. But if you put up batteries too, then it, it would be feasible and possible. I think maybe on the moon would probably be better if there's, I guess, energy sources on the moon other than solar, but maybe wind. I don't know. <laughs> maybe Elon's working on it. <laughs> Who knows, right? Holy crap. All right, man. Um, anything else we, uh, we need to talk about? Um, because you're blowing my mind. <laughs> what have we been doing this for about an hour? Uh, yeah. where, well, first of all, let's, um, let's make sure people can find you. Where, where can people find you? So I am on Twitter at JP Barrick. And then also miningstore.com um, is the website. You can sign up for our email list. We're launching, it's called Orm Capital Ventures. That's our .com. That's our parent company that owns Mining Store and the different uh, operations and brands that we have. And you can sign up for an email list there to learn more about the macro trends that I'm talking about and these energy problems and how Bitcoin mining is going to solve that. Those are the two ways to get connected uh, with me and to find out more about what I'm doing and what I'm working on. Do you want to spell that, Aurum? I, I didn't. Uh, A-U-R-U-M and then capitalventures.com website is currently not up as of end of February, but we'll be putting it up in the next couple of weeks. So okay. check it out. In the meantime, just follow me on Twitter and I will tweet it out once it's live and available. If you want, add it on the list. The email list is already going out. Just DM me and I can add you. Okay, cool. And final question I ask at the end of each show. Um, if there was one person that you could reach and educate about Bitcoin, who would then go and share that message with, with their following, um, who could reach a far wider audience than we could ever dream of, who would you want that person to be and why? Mm. I mean, I, I'm just thinking immediately comes to my head is Elon, because partly because you mentioned him, probably because I'm a big fan. I know he loves like solar and, and renewables and, energy and he's really an innovator and i think that um you know he doesn't really necessarily believe 100 percent in bitcoin and know if it's going to be the one currency that we have for the internet but i think that if you know if, he, if i could explain mining to him to the way where i think will happen and the way i understand it now maybe that would change his opinion and you could see the opportunity that it's you know that it's going to provide for not only renewable energy but for you know economic freedom for a lot of people I think you'd love to hear that as well. So I don't know if we could crowdsource a, tw a retweet to, to get Elon to, to get hold of JP and invite him up to SpaceX, figure out if there's a way we can launch something into space and start uh, Bitcoin mining up there with it's yeah. Skynet as well, right? You know, this yeah, that, then you can then, you know, you can run your miners anywhere now with the internet. We'll launch Skynet and we'll have access to internet everywhere, wherever there's stranded power. It all ties in. <laughs> we could be uncovering something jp without <laughs> even realizing <laughs> we're getting there it's yes <laughs> well we're definitely gonna have to have a round two because i can't believe you're 22 years old this is crazy like <laughs> you know like the, the, the way you see this the way you understand it so deeply and the way you can answer these questions so clearly 
and your vision how you like mate are you are you lonely sometimes <laughs> i think we all are lonely but on that note we are we are raising a series a round if anyone wants to invest so um oh. send me an email jp at if you want to learn more about maybe getting some upside to all these ideas in here <laughs> there you go right there's 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 the opportunity um all right well you know like thanks for your time thanks for um uh, supporting the show thanks for you know um responding to my dm on twitter uh you know it's just been amazing that um the people like yourself uh, are willing to give up time and, and share this information and um yeah i, I wish you all the best and I, I can't wait to to see what happens over the next six months no i'm excited and definitely appreciate you having me on and we'll love to reconnect and once you got everything that i mentioned about the changing money from oil to electrons and this new this new bitcoin mining game love to chat farther appreciate it excellent well thank you very much Dave P. have a great thank evening you. you too bye hey guys uh thanks for listening uh, i bet i bet you're still here i bet you wanted more as well because i did that blew my mind every single thing jp was talking about blew my mind that was just incredible. And that last question about mining in space was just, you know, that was just like thrown out there as a bit of a joke, but like, yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, you heard it, but I mean, there was so much in there. There's so much to unpack. I don't think I can uh, summarize it. I I've just re-listened to it myself and there's, there's just so much to go over. One thing I will mention is, uh, you know, after we, um, stopped recording i'm gonna to have to stop doing this i'm just gonna keep recording everything because we get into more conversations um we were talking about like he mentioned uh that jp morgan uh are mining and um you know i wish i'd have uh, questioned him more about that at the time on you know as i was recording but afterwards uh you know it, it's like i just can't believe what's going on like jp morgan are mining bitcoin I, have, I, I can tell you now that there are people that work at that bank, thousands of people that work at that bank that have no idea that that's happening. Even foreign exchange traders will have no idea that that is going on. And that just blows my mind. And then we have Jamie Dimon coming out and saying negative shit and fudding Bitcoin every now and then whilst that bank is mining it. It's just manipulation of the highest order. And it's just, it's a, it's a bit worrying that, well, not a bit worrying, it's very worrying. Um, I had no idea this, that, that this, this was taking place. And, and, and if, if that's one of them, there'll be more of them. You know, I get it with the energy uh, companies. I, I totally understand that because, like he was explaining, it, that there's trapped energy that's just going to waste or it's getting flared off, and that's bad for the environment. So you can switch that into energy and, and mine Bitcoin, and that's a, another revenue stream, which you can use for research and development and, you know, and grow the company. But the banks... I mean, they're, they're clearly doing it for speculative purposes, but to, to be fudding it at the same time, oh man, the history is not going to look back on this well at all again. And it's a little bit worrying. 
But uh, yeah, I mean, you can probably hear my brain whirring with all of the information that uh, that I've just uh, downloaded uh, from JP. Um, incredible young man. And yeah, really going to be following closely what goes on. I'm going to stay very, uh, very much in contact with, with JP to see, um, you know, where he's headed. If anybody's looking to reach out to him, like he said in the, in the podcast there, they are looking for investment at the moment. They're, they're struggling to find the investment from, uh, you know, general sources, i.e. banks, which makes more sense, right? They're not going to, if they're mining Bitcoins themselves, they're not going to fund competitors. All right, my brain's, my brain's, uh, my brain's spinning. Loads to unpack. I really hope you enjoyed the show. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Do JP a favor, retweet it out, share it make your friends listen to it. Now you know a little bit more about mining. I hope you've got a little bit more uh, to, you know, more firepower down the pub next time you're you're with your your friends or your family at the dinner table and they're asking you questions and you, you, you're just looking for extra answers. I think JP's just um, loaded you up with a bunch of ammo. So have a, um, have a great uh, rest of your weekend or week whenever you're listening to this. Find me at uh, Princey1976 on Twitter. Head over to once-bitten.com. Um, reach out. And, uh, yeah, thanks for supporting the show. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye-bye.